Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 24th, 2022. Um, it's looking at my Apple Watch. It's uh, 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. Pacific time, which is um, 10 p.m. in the UK. Uh, my guest is in the UK today. Imagine if we didn't have numbers. Imagine if I wasn't able to articulate the time or the date. It's, for, I think most of us, it's quite unimaginable. But there are peoples in the world um, whose language doesn't contain numbers. Here we have uh, a headline from uh, a piece from a few years ago, imagining uh, if language had no numbers. And those uh, peoples uh, in the photograph are the Piraha people, um, an indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest, who apparently language doesn't contain numbers. So it's uh, it's a very intellectually, philosophically challenging idea to imagine life without numbers, to imagine being part of the Pirahi people. Um, my guest today on the show is the author of a book about uh, math, not about living without language, but, uh, sorry, not, not a book about living without numbers, but a book about how Mathematics, according to him, created civilization. His name is Michael Brooks, a very successful and popular writer on science, a popularizer of science, but at the same time, extremely erudite. And I'm thrilled that Michael is joining us from Lewis, just near Brighton in the south of England. Michael, what would life be like if we didn't have numbers? We wouldn't be able to do this, would we? Because the internet is founded on numbers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, almost everything we're doing right now is it involves numbers. You know, across uh, across the world, communication is numbers. Like you say, internet is numbers. It's amazing to me just looking at that that uh, page uh, that you just put up on, on the visuals there. You know, the number of numbers uh, you know that are there, sort of punctuating our lives. And on the Wikipedia page as well, the references are all in numbers. You know, the dates and numbers, uh, total population. Yeah, even the total population, as you say, 800 people. Yeah, we count everything. We count everything. And yet the Piraha count nothing, or they count nothing more than the number three. Basically, if there's more than three of anything, they just call it more. And, uh, and that's kind of you know, where the title of my book came from. Because going beyond just counting to three, you know, the, the art of more, is where all of our innovations have come from. So that's that's what really sort of excited me when I started to look into this, to realize that, you know, life without numbers means life without almost everything that we take for granted in our civilization. I'll try not to make any menage a trois jokes, Michael. <laughs> I want to that. Um, this is a family show. My sense is that in, in your analysis of numbers, you take, I wouldn't say a Marxist position, but uh, when Marx distinguished Man from the Beast, he suggests that we have a species being that made us creative. Um, your suggestion is what suggest what distinguishes us from the animals is our not our mastery of numbers, but our invention of numbers. Because there's nothing natural about numbers, are they? I mean, they're not just there. We had to create 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's quite right. I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd label it as a Marxist position. Uh, that therein lies plenty of danger. But uh, no, no, I, no, I didn't mean to suggest it was. What I'm saying is that some philosophers like Marx to sort of to build a foundation for their way of thinking about the world distinguishes distinguish us from other species, and you do a similar thing, not in a Marxist sense. Yeah. So, so I think based it's, on math. I think it's really important to realize that numbers are not a real thing. They're not a natural thing. That no animal species naturally counts, and that includes us. So, you know, we can distinguish, you know, a, a few things, you know, three things usually at most, perhaps four naturally. And the rest... That what does that mean, up, we can distinguish naturally? Because oh, when I look, is that a biological naturalism? I don't understand. Effectively, when you do experiments um, on animals and asking them to judge, you know, which pile of food they'd like, for instance, if you give them one versus two, they'll take two. If you give them two versus three, uh, they'll take three. Generally, if you give three versus four, it's much less clear cut in that they don't sort of see, um, you know, three items of food as being that different to four. Um, so and then, animals wouldn't make very good venture capitalists. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, and interestingly, a lot of animals can do ratios so they can see that one pile, say, is twice as big as another, but they, they can't sort of distinguish it if any, any closer than that. Um, so, so can, what can we've animals done... go the other way? I mean, in terms of conceptualizing, can they imagine half or do they only think in terms of multiples well from the experiments that we've done it, it really seems that it's in terms of multiples i mean it's very difficult to sort of interrogate animals on this kind of thing you know the experiments take a lot of uh, imagination a lot of creativity but the point is of course that we have language and language allows us to articulate uh, to give you know words to you know these extra quantities so you know we 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 come up with you know the numbers and one two three four and we can keep going and it has given us an incredible tool for starting to sort of process the world in terms of numbers and no animal uh, species has that facility michael let me ask you the the chicken and egg uh, question here what came first numbers or language i i would uh, say uh, num uh, language I think I think you need language to really process numbers properly, and I, I think it's it's very clear that you know we our oldest artifact is sort of twenty thousand years old numerical artifact that we think you know actually was a, a, a an incidence of somebody counting and it's called the Ashango bone and it sits you know it, it was I think it was found in the Congo and it it now it looks like somebody was the Ashango bone yes. Yeah. Uh, what 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 is it, and what, what what's its significance? It's so it's a baboon femur that has a number of notches carved into it that seem to be slightly grouped. So they might be, um, you know, a tally of some sort, or counting off days of a month, or something like that. And uh, you know, we had language, a proto language, certainly long before that. So uh, it seems that we had language, and we gave, uh, we started to articulate this concept of numbers, and that is, is what allowed us to to become a mathematical species. You, um, your, your, your book is a, a history in some ways, a history of the concept of math. Mm. Uh, you talk about a king called King Shulgi, one of the, the earliest uh, kings in the dynasty of Ur, uh, more than uh, 4,000 years ago. What's significant yeah. about Shulgi uh, and math? Is this the first, one of the first examples of math as power, as political power? Yeah, so I mean, scholars have termed his kingdom the first mathematical state. So they, they said uh, that um, 
what happened was King Shulgi was basically trained in arithmetic. So uh, he learned how to add and subtract, which wasn't really necessary in order to be a king at that point. You know, it was just a kind of, you know, he became king because his father was king. And, uh, but he, he learned these sort of slight mathematical arts, probably no better than what we would get, you know, we would expect a child in elementary school to be able to learn uh, quite early on, in fact, because uh, we have records that he could add and subtract, uh, subtract, but not that he could multiply or divide. So, um, so he had this sort of elementary math, but he saw the power of it. And, uh, and he implemented a kind of accounting system uh, for the kingdom, which meant that nobody could, uh, it was a tamper-proof sort of accounting system, a bit like double-entry bookkeeping, uh, that meant that nobody could continue to defraud the state. And what happened was, um, you know, the civil servants, the people in control of the money, uh, actually just couldn't sort of embezzle anything. Uh, and, and it became a very rich kingdom. And, and Shulgi used those, uh, the, the sort of money that he amassed and his kingdom amassed uh, without sort of bleeding it off to, uh, to people uh, to create you know, huge trade routes uh, to finish uh, the great ziggurat of Ur, which um, his father had started. Yeah, I, so, I, I was curious about the, the ziggurat of Ur, one of the great architectural achievements of that. Exactly. And, and so sort of the control of the numbers really opens up a load of other possibilities. Can and a we load build of stuff, uh, Michael? Does is it possible to build anything without an understanding of numbers? Uh, yes, it is, um, and and you can build plenty of things just by eye and uh, following a very I guess simple. Birds design. build nests without yeah. Yeah. numbers. Yeah, but interestingly, if if you were in the Babylonian kingdoms, you know, sort of uh, three or four thousand years ago, and you wanted to create a right angle. Uh, you would do that by actually um, knotting a rope in uh, units of three, four, and five lengths and putting them together into a triangle, which we know makes a three, four, five right-angle triangle, uh, according to what we now call Pythagoras' theorem, but actually was in use long before Pythagoras appeared. And, and so we have um, you know, sort of rudimentary use of mathematics in building quite early on. And then you get uh, buildings like the Hagia Sophia in uh, Istanbul, uh, which was designed by two mathematicians um, and you know they were commissioned uh, to to create uh, a, 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 an astounding you know building an astounding sort of when was the Hagia Sophia built um, 537 no, 537 according at least to um to wikipedia yeah. which is usually yeah. pretty good on these sorts of things yeah but, so um, classical greece of course yeah so um, but you know it was meant to be this you know, enormous demonstration of power and, uh, and, it, and it, it was two mathematicians who were called upon to build it, uh, to design it and to instruct the, um, uh, instruct the, the, the builders as to how to proceed. So it was a very practical kind of discipline at that time. You know, we sometimes think of mathematics as being esoteric, something that's done in ivory towers. You know, these mathematicians are kind of otherworldly beings, but that certainly wasn't the case back then. You mentioned Pythagoras. Everyone's heard of Pythagoras, although I'm not yeah. sure they're all masters of his math. Um, is, uh, is, are numbers and math, are they essentially born in classical Greece with, uh, Pythagoras and then of course later, uh, Aristotle, who was as much a scientist as a philosopher? I think it's probably safer to say that they were really sort of collated and curated in classical Greece. You know, we have records of of uh, Indian civilizations, of Chinese civilizations that, that uh, and, and 
and some African civilizations that that have you know played with numbers for for all these millennia really, and we're in a position where you know certainly in in Europe and uh, and I guess in America as well we we sort of lean on the Greek uh, history as being our history, and we kind of consider it to be where our intellectual uh, traditions came from. And certainly, the Greeks, you know, had this enormous respect and love of of numbers. Uh, they were kind of in awe of of numbers in many ways, and saw them as the key to understanding the cosmos and and almost what it meant to be human. I mean, and, Plato's uh, philosophy is rooted in math, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So so everything is number, and and the Pythagorean school. Uh, has this uh, sort of you know archway uh, where you know you, in order to, to gain access to the to the sort of the Pythagoreans you had to go through this thing you know saying all is number in the in the archway and you know you kind of swore um, allegiance to the idea of number as being you know the the most central the most fundamental the most basic element of the cosmos uh, and and so you know that has become very much our tradition partly because the, you know, those things were written down, they were collated really well and kept uh, and transmitted down through the generations and then um, you know, translated into Arabic, uh, although you know, there were Arabic traditions who, as well. Who was the first, um, Michael, who, who do you think was the first philosopher of numbers to think about numbers um, in, in, in a conceptual sense as having broader cosmological significance? Would it have been Plato? For my money, I think it would have been Plato, um, and you know we have the sort of the legacy of that in our you know, Platonic ideals and Platonic solids, uh, the you know the, these Platonic shapes which are supposed to be you know just so sort of significant, uh, and um, and I, I I guess you know that was kind of really where it, it crystallized, and and it certainly you know through the work of Euclid has been sort of really sort of set in stone for us as being you know something that's really sort of quite profound and important to our to our culture plato of course fetishized the original um platonic ideal we, we sort of recreated that now in digital i think with nfts um, <laughs> would most serious mathematicians write off this notion of there being an original, an original number, an original thing? I think if you press them, they would. And it's, I mean, it's difficult to speak of, you know, of mathematicians as a, a homogeneous sort of body. I think, um, I think lots of them really like the idea of, of maths being so sort of fundamental and, and, and the, being the, the sort of building blocks of, of the universe, if you like. And of course, you know, when you get into doing mathematical physics, uh, you, and you're trying to describe how the universe works and what it looks like. You can't do that without numbers. So, so you get this sense that number is sort of really fundamental. Uh, so, I think it's a, it's a kind of um, it's a difficult one. It's sort of like a romantic ideal in some ways, uh, and it's a romantic notion. And if you're a mathematician, the idea that you're involved in this, you know, almost quasi mystical uh, quest to understand everything through number. It's very appealing, and I think that's why you get so many mathematicians who would say that you know our mathematics is discovered rather than invented. You know, we we uncover something about the universe through mathematics, and, and I would I would lean much more towards there being a, a sense of invention uh, that you know we, we invented numbers, we invented the language to help us process numbers, and you know we continue to invent processes and algorithms for dealing with numbers. Uh, but I mean, yeah, that's very, uh, you know, very much a contentious point. All of it's contentious. Um, 
which makes it interesting. Uh, I'm talking with Michael Brooks, a popular writer on science, his new book, The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization. Uh, some of you will be familiar with uh, his last best-selling book, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, uh, as well as the Quantum Astrologer's Handbook. Um, Michael, your subtitle is a little naughty, might get you into trouble. How <laughs> Mathematics Created Civilization. In a world where we are continuing, I think, to fetishize the indigenous, and we had a couple of Im images of indigenous peoples, is there a danger that you could be accused of being a, um, a, a superior white man here? This yeah. Civilization. I, I, I know you're careful to acknowledge that numbers were as much invented in, in ancient Africa and yes. uh, in the ancient Muslim world as much as Greece. But still, is this idea of civilization uh, a dangerous concept these days? I think it's, it's an interesting thing because it's a kind of shorthand that most of us sort of understand what we mean by uh, by civilization. We're not, and we're not talking about some kind of you know, superior moral situation or superior thinking even, what we're talking about is the infrastructure, or what I'm talking about, I should say, is the infrastructure of the world that, that is familiar to most of us. Uh, I mean, it, the civilizations that uh, and the societies that have no numbers, that don't deal with numbers, are very, very few and far between, you know, these days. You know, there's this massive reach of, of, um, of cultures uh, for good and bad that, that means that, you know, we're, we're very much sort of affecting each other around the world. But when we think of um, civilization, it's quite, it's quite interesting to look at definitions because most definitions will say, well, you know, a civilization is defined as having a class structure. It has um, settlements, so cities. It has infrastructures you know, for farming. Uh, and, uh, and usually there's a, a class of people who have more leisure time and they bring cult and they create culture. And, and usually that's sort of talked about as literature and, 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 uh, and poetry, art, that kind of thing. Actually, what I think is missing from every single definition I, I looked at was any grasp of numbers. So, um, so there was nothing in any of the definitions of civilization I ever came across that said, and they learn how to manipulate numbers. And yet I would say that is the one thing that does unite everything that we would call you know, a sophisticated civilization. Uh, so the Incas uh, didn't write but they did keep number records in, in knotted ropes. And so, they uh, couldn't have constructed their remarkable architecture yeah, without a master. Exactly. Yeah, they, uh, I mean, we are talking with Michael Brook, the author of The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization. Fascinating look at, at math as the, the foundation of, 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 of modernity, of civilization. Um, after the break, Michael, I, I want to come back and talk about modernity, about how math contributed to, for better or worse, to the modern world. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, 
you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Michael Brooks, the UK-based author of The Art of More, a very popular and successful science writer. Um, in the first half of the show, um, in terms of Michael's new book, The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization, we talked about some of the civilizations of antiquity. In the second half of the show, I want to talk about modernity. Uh, we touched on uh, Pythagoras, Michael, in the first half, the perhaps the best known, the most uh, famous of all mathematicians of antiquity. Might it be fair to say that the, the, the most iconic modern mathematician was Isaac Newton, or is that an oversimplification? <laughs> I, think, I think that it's fair to say. I mean, he was an extraordinary mind, you know, able to just wring out you know, thoughts from his brain that, that nobody else could really manage to you know, hold on to for long enough. So, yeah. and, and um, not exclusively, you know, necessarily the best at, at everything, but uh, certainly what an enormous contribution. Uh, we touched on Marx earlier. I don't want to appear like a Marxist, but there are, of course, Marxist philosophers of science who associate capitalism and math and the mastery, particularly of the capitalist industrial revolution. How important was math in the invention of the capitalist industrial revolution and, and, and what philosophers or what mathematicians are key here? Well, I think it was absolutely central to it in that, in that you can't really run a you know, profit-making enterprise without control of the numbers. And uh, this is something that Rockefeller noted and Rockefeller trained as a bookkeeper and started out, you know, and, and throughout his life, he, he celebrated like a birthday, the day that he first became a, you know, a working bookkeeper. And he saw it as the key to understanding how to, you know, to run a, a profitable business. Um, Wedgwood, the you know, who made pottery, was was his work was revolutionised by taking control of the, the account books and understanding, you know, what where profit and loss was was coming from. Uh, and and Marx himself was, you know, obsessed by this and and you know and studied endlessly, you know, the the account books. Of, uh, of, of you know, or anything that he could really get his hand on to understand what was going on in the in the capitalist enterprise, and um, and of course banking you know relies on mathematics and numbers ever more so now in terms of abstract mathematics. Ever, well. ever more so, and I want to get onto that a little bit later. Also, the construction of the modern state. I know uh, you touch on Alexander Hamilton in your book, who was <laughs> successful in the U.S. Of course, one of the founders of the U.S. state. Yeah. 
um, contributed to after him. Uh, and also less popular, less successful builders of the state, the French um, uh, bureaucrat uh, Jacques Necker, who uh, also was a talented mathematician, but who failed in uh, state building on, in the French case. How, how critical is math in the building of successful modern states, whether it's France or the UK or the United States? It's massively important because everything, I mean, as, as you know, you know, everybody looks at the budget. Everyone's, everyone wants the budget balance. Everyone wants the book balance. And if you're going to in, invest in military and education, uh, if you're going to invest in health, if you invest in or any kind of thing, you need to have control of the numbers. And any government will tell you that, that you know, once they, they have you know, the understanding of the finances and the, the grasp of where the debt is at and things like that, then... then and, and control okay. is the key word, isn't it, Michael? Because absolutely. Control power, is particularly in modernity. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So you have to have control. Uh, Necker didn't have control. Necker just pointed out that the French aristocracy were profligate in their use of money and that people across the channel in, in England, uh, governments were much more controlled in their spending. Uh, and that sort of, you know, that was what kind of lost Necker his job as finance minister in France. But, you know, it was what seeded, you know, his, his sacking effectively seeded the French Revolution. So moved that state forward. Um, and, uh, and Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton saw the, sort of the way that the Dutch uh, governments, uh, the English government the, and the French government as well, uh, was controlling debt and understanding, you know, the, the value of having banks, for instance. And Hamilton saw all this and studied uh, these financial systems and said, this is what we need in America. So you is there a civilization, Michael, that you think sort of captures um, the mastery of math? Might it be 16th, 17th century Holland? Uh, certainly, they were very on top of things. I think similarly in Italy as well, certainly northern Italy, when the Medici Bank was running, and when it was run well, um, and the, the, the balance books were very carefully controlled uh, centrally, then uh, the Medici Bank was incredibly powerful and lending you know, to, I mean, more powerful than any nation state, arguably, because it could control the spending of all the nation states. Well, it was the nation state, essentially. Well, I mean, certainly in... in, in, in um in the renaissance uh, in, the, in the italian renaissance uh, i'm speaking with michael uh, brook the author of a wonderful new book the art of more how math created civilization it's also a book about art it's not just about state building or science it's a book um about the role of math in art i know you have a, a section on uh on the uh on the 15th or uh, early 16th century uh uh, German artist Albrecht Dürer. What, 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 why is understanding math so critical in the creation of artistic civilization, Michael? Now, this is an interesting sort of diversion because we're moving away from numbers as such to, to measuring space and, and the numbers associated with lines and shapes. And, uh, and that's what enabled um, Islamic uh, theorists particularly to understand the rules of perspective and optics and how light travels mm. through the eye. And, uh, and from that, uh, artists began to get the geometry of optics and they began to be able to you know, trace you know, and draw diagrams of where the light was coming from, uh, from a certain object they wanted to paint. And it, and it might be quite a complicated situation, but if you knew the rules, then you could create a perspective image. 
uh, and quite a, yeah, an incredibly realistic image as well. So we see this uh, huge transformation around the sort of beginning of the 16th century in terms of the realism in paintings and the, the way that scenes would be drawn, particularly like a temple scene uh, with these beautifully sort of uh, articulated vanishing points and, and uh, all the lines you know, are perfectly in perspective. And you get this sense that, that artists had suddenly appreciated what mathematicians uh, had sort of probably not really translated properly towards art, but they, you know, they grabbed what the mathematicians had uh, had worked out and used it to sort of transform the way they painted, uh, the way that uh, Dürer, for instance, did his uh, engravings. Uh, and it's and it's wonderful to watch Dürer's sort of journey where he sort of, he says he's going to travel to Italy and, and speak with a man who's willing to teach him the secrets of perspective. And, uh, and, and then you get uh, Dürer doing um, these uh, incredible artworks where he shows people, there's, there's a famous one of the man drawing a lute or two men drawing a lute. And they're, they're plotting the direction or plotting the trajectory of rays of light that are coming from the curved surface of this lute and how they should, you know, how it, each point should exactly appear on the image that they're creating. Yeah, this is the sort of the foundations of the camera obscura, which of course um, also wouldn't be possible without math. And reading your book and thinking about your work really underlined the importance of math and perspective in the work of Vermeer, my favorite artist. Yeah. How, how did math affect um, later more modern art like Vermeer and Rembrandt? Well, I think, um, to be honest, I think it, it became almost a, a trade secret that you, know, you could do this kind of thing. Uh, certainly using mirrors and optic, optical tricks, uh, you could project onto a, onto a canvas, for instance, uh, if you knew the right sort of way to do things uh, or to set things up. Um, and there's a lot of argument about whether this was done or how this was done. Um, David Hockney has been very famously sort of forthright about the idea that this was a, a scientific venture, if you like, uh, and, and sort of wasn't doable by any other means than you know, having these optics ideas. Yeah, and there's a big debate about Vermeer's work, about whether mm. or not he did actually use the camera obscura for some of his masterpieces. It is, and it's not clear what the answer is. But, but what is clear is that the kind of time in which uh, Vermeer was painting, or just before the time, time when he was perhaps training, was a time when you know, this was certainly becoming a technique that was more and more used. And so we're, you know, we can never prove it exactly, but it does seem to be that, you know, very suggestive. And the, sort of, the way that there was this you know, enormous leap in, in artists' abilities suggests that they had new tools that maybe they weren't talking about publicly. Uh, those new tools when it came to Vermeer. He was a master of painting women in particular. So far, we've only talked about male mathematicians, male masters, but you acknowledge that there are many females who are also very influential um, uh, mathematicians. You talk about in your book, Florence Nightingale, another very important um, 19th century uh, uh, math, British uh, mathematician was uh, Ada Lovelace, who essentially invented the concept of software. Yeah, is there something gendered? I mean, I know there's an ongoing debate about this about math. Some yeah. even suggest that math itself might be a figment of the male imagination. Well, I mean, I, I think that's there's no sort of gender difference in terms of mathematical ability, and uh, anyone who's, who claims that there is, I think, is is working probably from bias. 
Um, what there was was uh, a huge, and still is in many ways, a huge disparity in terms of access to the subject, access to actually working um, in mathematics. And, uh, and, and we see this sort of through the history and, and certainly the, you know, the Greek uh, attitude, uh, ancient Greek attitude was very much that, that, you know, this was a man's world and this was, you know, something that men should be doing. And I think that has probably trickled down and, and been uh, continued uh, through many centuries. Uh, and, and we're in a position where, you know, it was only in um, Einstein's time when uh, a woman called Emmy Noether uh, managed to basically become pretty much one of the best mathematicians in the world. She was uh, from a, an academic family. Uh, she wanted to gain her degree in mathematics, which she eventually managed to do. Uh, she wanted to work in mathematics and she was never allowed to be paid until extremely late in her career. Uh, and she, you know, the mathematics that she created um, now underlies most of um, the sort of work that we do in particle physics and and uh, real sort of frontier understandings of the cosmos. And the same, of course, is true. Where we mentioned Ada Lovelace, um, who sort of invented as a mathematician the idea of computer software. Um, you write in your book about um, George Ball, who uh, founded the notion of Boolean. Uh, logic and, mm -hmm. and then Claude Shannon, the sort of the father of, I don't know, crypto, cryptography and yeah. mathematical theory of communication. Um, talk very briefly, uh, Michael, about math as the foundation of the digital revolution. Of course, it goes without saying that Google, one of the most powerful digital companies these days, itself, the word Google, of course, is um, references uh, the, mis the the purposeful misspelling of a of a mathematical number. Yeah, and and Google came from a linear algebra uh, background. So so the the inventors of Google were basically carrying around with what you know we would see maybe as uh, you know mathematical spreadsheets, but you know ultra ultra mathematical spreadsheets. And and this linear algebra you know was was what enabled Google to take over the world. Um, digital sort of things were, were were really pioneered by Claude Shannon in the early twentieth century, uh, and he he basically you know understood the power of of reducing things to zeros and ones and then encoding information within those zeros and ones uh, and and published you know a, a couple of extraordinary papers that really carried everything that we ever needed to to establish you know not only the digital communications but the whole internet. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, there's just an extraordinary sort of revolution happened in the last hundred years, uh, and uh, and and we're, you know, we're absolutely living the benefits of it. It's it's an incredible thing, but none of it would have would have happened without an understanding of what numbers are and what they can do. Finally, Michael, I did a show late last week with Peter Goodman, the New York Times correspondent. He's written a book called Davos Man, in which he talks about the power of billionaires, basically ruining our world, world of increasing inequality. Later uh, this week, I'm going to talk with Christopher Leonard, the author of The Lords of uh, Easy Money, as well as um, Sebastian Malaby, British-based uh, expert on uh, venture capital. He has a really interesting new book out, The Power Law. Is what at least Goodman calls Davos Man, is, are we living in an age of a mathematical elite? Is math the thing or a mastery of math, whether it's Jeff Bezos or a VC? Are these the, is that the real difference between people who hold power and those that don't? Companies or individuals like Google or Bezos who have mastered math where the rest of us haven't? 
Absolutely. And I think in this age, you can't hold power without a, a mathematical background without, or without at least having people work for you who are the best mathematicians in the world. I and mean, that's why uh, we're in a position where, you know, every maths graduate or certainly, you know, PhDs uh, who are, who are uh, competent in maths get hoovered up by um, financial systems and by governments, because actually um, they are the key to understanding how the world works and being able to model how the world works. How and our world it. works. It's not the world. It's yeah, okay. How are alternatives to this world, Michael, aren't there? Sorry? There, there are alternatives. I mean, there's there nothing are. inevitable about the world of Davos man that we live in, is there? Uh, I I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to separate yourself from that world and uh, and live what you would consider to be um, the life that you want to live. I, I think it's almost we're almost being forced to to make this sort of distinction between you know do we want to be part of it or do we want to be left behind? And I and I think um, most of us want to want to have the benefits that are you know are coming our way because of these kinds of uh corporations because of these uh um abilities to communicate you know i mean you you're 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 not a fan of facebook i know but um most people would say well i'll i'll take what they give me uh no matter what you know what the cost because actually you know i i crave uh, perhaps even addicted to this sort of this close network communication we began michael the show talking about um the parahi people who didn't have numbers are you suggesting then that perhaps in our age of Web3, of the democratization of power, supposed claim democratization of power, that the fix for the inequality, the, the new kind of math hierarchy in the world, the fix is not to do away with math, but to democratize it, more education, more people mastering math to give them more power, more agency over their lives? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Just in the last... Uh, couple of weeks, Bill Gates has, has launched a new uh, drive for algebra education uh, because he says that, you know, it's very clear that, that kids who can do algebra will get on better in life. And I think one of the things we really need to propagate is the idea that, that anybody can do math. You're not born to it. It's not sort of wired into you because of your birth. Um, anybody can do math. We just do a very good job of turning people off math through the education system. And I think that's something that we need to look at and we need to make sure that that stops happening because uh, what we see is that actually those in the, the less privileged groups are the most easy to turn off math. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, the lovely things about your new book, The Art of More, How Math Created Civilization, anyone can read it. It's not just a book for, for mathematicians. So congratulations, uh, Michael, on the book. Um, you are in uh, just outside uh, Brighton in Lewis uh, in, in early January 2022. What else should people be reading in these strange times in addition to your new book? Well, that, that's a question. Um, read fiction and escape the reality, I would say, for a start. I mean, that's Any a, good fiction books? Um, I, I'm one of the, my favorite books that I read recently was Katsuo Ishiguro, Clara, Clara and the Sun. It just, yeah, it which is also a book about math. It is. It's not how I read it. Treatment of imagining non-humans mastering math. Yeah, it's, and it's, what's it's missing if they have mastered math. It, it's an interesting. I think it's an interesting time. I mean, he's just such a master. Wonderful book. Yeah, I'd love to get Ishiguro on the show. Actually, I've requested him. He's hard to get. Anyway, Michael Brooks is is uh, equally good. And congratulations, Michael, on the new book.
the art of more, how math created civilization. Love to have you back on the show to talk more science and why it's so important. Keep well, Michael. Keep Thank writing. And uh, we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you very Great. much. Okay.